You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We're so thankful to have here today Burak Yenigun. And to all my Turkish friends listening, I apologize. I'm sure I didn't get that right. So we'll give Burak a chance to say his own name in a moment here. But he is the founder of Stylus Capital. They are a systematic asset management firm that focuses on crypto assets. So they're actually trading in cryptocurrency. And so we're happy to have him today. But also, he has done some uh, really, really exciting work in this aspect of scarcity of founders and the work that we need to do as a society to help de-risk entrepreneurship. So today we'll be able to jump into both of those topics. We're going to talk about crypto. You're going to hear about that. And we're going to talk about de-risking entrepreneurship. So Barack, so thankful to have you here. Please set the record straight and tell everybody how to properly say your name. Sure. So the name would be Burak Yenigun. But honestly, I mean, that was so close. It was so close to perfect that, you know, no complaints whatsoever. Well, you know, Burak, what many of our listeners love hearing is just people's stories and how they got where they are. So yours has not been a traditional path necessarily to asset management. So, you know, you actually started out in electronic engineering. So how did you make that shift from electronic engineering over into asset management? So I was born and raised in Istanbul and I studied here. I studied electronics engineering. I did internship at a bunch of companies, but quickly realized, you know, I wasn't that interested in it and I was more interested in finance. So upon graduation, I ended up picking a job at JP Morgan, basically. And that was the beginning of the transition. And I moved to London, worked there for three, four years, came back to my hometown, worked here a little bit. Then eventually in 2014, I started Stylus Capital. And so, Burak, when you originally started Stylus Capital, you know, it sounds like that was before crypto was really taking off. So what was it you were initially doing at Stylus? Yeah, this is an interesting story because, I mean, the company, as a manager, I moved from, you know, value-oriented equities to trend-following crypto, uh, which is a pretty stark transition. So when I first started, I was doing pure, you know, bottom-up value investing, but just analyze companies specifically within emerging markets and then try to find underpriced opportunities. And I did that for about five years. And let me interrupt real quickly, Burak. Lots of our listeners will know exactly what you mean when you say value priced investing in emerging markets, but we'll have several listeners that won't. I told someone last week on the show, my mom started listening. And so (laughs) I always try to put the lens of, will my mom understand what that means? So let's unpack that real quickly for those listeners that don't fully understand that. When you say value investing, what do you mean by that? So value investing would be effectively trying to determine the fair price of a business. Let's call Apple, right? Let's say if Apple is trading at, say, $200 a share, you do an analysis and perhaps your analysis leads you to think that it's worth $400 a share. And then you would step in and buy it, uh, hoping that eventually the price goes where you think it should go. So that would be value investing. And I guess the quintessential example would be Warren Buffett. That's the style of investing that I 
originally started out with. And with that, so just to make sure uh, I understand, you're saying you're looking for companies that uh, have maybe been mispriced in the current market. You're looking for what do you think their actual value is? And then you're placing trades to adjust for that, whether down or up because it was a hedge fund. Is that right? That's correct. The fund did have a long bias. So we would long, we would buy things more often than we short them. But yes, essentially, that was the idea. And there is this question in finance, you know, at what point do you determine that you have skill or not? And after three years of investing, I mean, I was barely matching and slightly beating the benchmark. So it was about 1% outperformance per year, which is, you know, it could have been just noise, right? So I increasingly, based on the results that I was getting, and also not just in terms of returns, but in terms of the outcomes in the individual businesses themselves. You know, So based on that three, four-year data, I was getting less and less convinced that I had an edge or that I was able to you know, add any kind of value. At the same time, though, over those three, four years, so between 2014 to 2017, I had been constantly looking at introducing systematic elements into how I invest. And the reason for that was going back to the Apple example. Let's say you decide Apple is worth $400, right? And you bought the company at $200 a share. And as the price goes up, your conviction level in your investment should come down, right? Because it was a great deal last year. Now it's less of a good deal. And In theory, your position size should reflect that. And I was very uncomfortable with the way that I was sizing the positions. And by sizing the positions, I mean, you know, how much to buy of a given asset, you know, considering you're managing, let's say, $100. And at this time, Burak, how much money were you managing? So this was, we were managing right under 5 million. So it was a tiny, tiny operation. Got it. So afterwards... One way to resolve that problem is, it turns out these problems have been thought about in systematic investing. A lot of people have done a lot of work around these issues, of course, typically within hedge funds, but a lot of that information has effectively become, they have effectively leaked out because people change jobs, people write books, there's academic research, etc. So what I ended up doing was, you know, After basically years of looking into these things, I came across some of these systematic frameworks that could help us position size better. And so that was the first kind of glimpse into systematic trading. And throughout that process, so we learned how to run trend following momentum and other systematic strategies. And right around at that time, the crypto boom happened. So the first time I actually looked at crypto was the summer of 2017. Prior to that, I was simply avoiding it. I thought, well, you know, I'm going to look into it, probably going to convince myself to buy a little bit, and then it's going to turn out to be a scam, and I'm going to hate myself forever touching it. So I deliberately avoided it, even though I first heard about it in 2014. And in 2017, that's when I took a closer look at it. Because you might remember that summer... 
you know, it was a huge bull market. Everybody was talking about crypto. So I spent a good two, three months trying to understand exactly what this Bitcoin protocol is doing, because it is kind of complicated, right? Like it, it's very hard to develop an intuition around why. Like there's always the questions like, you know, okay, this is Bitcoin, but what if somebody comes up with Bitcoin number two? You know, why is that not equally legitimate as Bitcoin? And isn't that some sort of inflation and things like that? So it really took me three months to finally get satisfying answers to those in my mind. There is, for example, I mean, the longer the chain, the more work has gone into producing it. And in a sense, that's where it's driving its legitimacy from. And there, so there are all these like little intricate aspects of it. And that's the point when I realized, you know, the systematic trading frameworks that we have in hand, they would work really, really well in crypto. And we can go into the reasons why. But then effectively, I shut down the value investing operation and we started to focus on crypto assets, which I felt we can add a lot more value. So I love this. You know, listeners, it takes a lot of courage to say, hey, you know, the strategy we initially had, we realized we were just not adding the value that we wanted to. But if you think about the world that I come from in venture capital, when you're investing in an earlier stage business, the most critical part that they're having to figure out in the early days is what is their product market fit? So how do they make sure that what they've designed is actually adding value to their customers' lives in a way that their customers are willing to pay a price that's profitable for that value add? And almost all of those companies have some pretty significant pivots along the way. They realize what they initially launched with isn't quite the right solution, and they pivot One of my favorite examples is many of you today use Slack, and maybe you didn't know Slack actually started as a video game company, and it just wasn't going well, but they developed this internal messaging platform, and so the team pivoted, and they actually completely pivoted, got out of video games, got into internal messaging, and that is today Slack, the company that so many of us use and love. So what you're hearing from Barack is he started out, realized that that product market fit wasn't quite there the way that he wanted it to be, and made a really important pivot. So Burak, it sounds a lot like you're functioning as an entrepreneur, and I do want to come back. I do want to hear more about the crypto stuff that you're up to. I think there's a small segment of our listeners that will love to hear that part. I think more important for today, I want to go back to this aspect that you've really tried to lead the charge on saying we need to help de-risk entrepreneurship. And this kind of started, you wrote a paper about this, right? Yeah, it was a more of a blog post. Funny enough, it was an interview with myself. I found that it was flowing better in that format. But then I think it was picked up by quite a few people. And I've been on, I think, two, three podcasts about this. And I think a lot of people are thinking around this. I think a lot of people are already thinking around how to fix this problem. But at least myself, I couldn't find anything very structured online about, you know, how one might tackle this. I think there are a couple of companies now that are trying to tackle it. But yeah, I think so. This is a problem that people have been kind of trying to innovate around for some time. Maybe I'm biased, but I look at this problem and I see 
something as big as you know the energy crisis or something like that you know a resource that is so scarce that it is you know stunting growth in a sense because you know the number of founders that we have is perhaps the biggest bottleneck that remains today that's the impression i get by looking at the data and listeners in our show notes whether you're on spotify or apple or wherever you're getting your podcasts we're going to go ahead and post the link to this blog post that burak is talking about i want you to be able to easily go find that so go check those show notes burak what is your sense of why we have this scarcity of entrepreneurs globally yeah that's a great question so i think for a second, let's entertain this idea, right? So let's say startups are a combination, a cocktail, if you will, of people, capital, and ideas. So it appears that the internet or technology, it has broadened the number of experiments that we can run. This could be, you know, software as a service tools. It could be other kinds of online software services. It could be you know, more and more people seem to be developing exciting hardware. I mean, I guess SpaceX would be the extreme example, but we don't have to go that far. Whatever the reason is, it looks like today there is more ideas waiting to be tested than ever. And perhaps more importantly, or rather equally importantly, the capital is so abundant today. I mean, you only need to look at, you know, the long-term treasury rates to see that the capital is actually abundant today. It is looking for a place to flow into. And obviously, it is exceedingly flowing into startups. That's why we hear about these huge venture capital funds, you know, launched every year, if not every month. So what ends up happening, it seems, is that obviously all that abundance is seem, is kind of flowing into rising startup valuations, right? Because we're noticing that these ideas are more profitable than we thought, and they are easier to build than we thought, and there is more opportunity than we thought was available. So what is the bottleneck then? So it looks like the bottleneck is the number of founders that we have. And I'm sure that there are founders out there that are looking for capital, but can't quite find it. Like that's probably a fact of life. It would be surprising if we were perfectly efficient in deploying capital today. But even adjusting for that, even if we had you know, if we double, triple the number of founders that we back today, that's still probably not enough to match the demand that all these new ideas we can test is throwing at us. And you can actually, like, one doesn't really need to take my word for it. So, you know, how would you know that the founders are scarce? Well, if their prices are rising, right? <laughs> you know, if the copper price doubles tomorrow, you know that something is going on with supply demand, right? Maybe the demand spiked or maybe there was an issue with supply. Now, I would argue that founder, quote unquote, of course, founder prices are rising because founders are able to build larger businesses faster. They're able to have more extreme payouts sooner. So obviously, that's a statistical distribution. You would need to look at, you know, a thousand people starting companies and maybe five of them create businesses that are, you know, multiple billions of dollars of value. But so that would be a kind of not a super easy exercise. But what you can do instead is look at the seed stage valuations, right? <laughs> so seed stage valuations in theory should be nothing but a probability weighted average, you know, expected outcome plus some hurdle rate discounting probably. So those were like $5 million 10 years ago, maybe, maybe less. Now 
what is the average ticket size? You, I mean, you probably know this better than me, but it's probably 10x, if not more. So that's market telling you, okay, look, dear entrepreneur, the opportunity in front of you is 10x of what we thought. And we're probabilistically paying you, or the opportunity in front of you is probabilistically paying you 10x what it used to pay. And that arguably is the best market observable signal of scarcity. I love it. Makes a lot of sense. And so as you talk about trying to de-risk that so that we can solve this scarcity bottleneck, what are some of the things that you see as those viable solutions to de-risking? Actually, Burak, before I have you answer that, I just want to share with our listeners, when he's talking about the risk for founders and why it's scarce, it's because it's hard. I've been a founder multiple times throughout my lifetime. It was not my first business that succeeded and went nationwide. It was not my second. It was not my third. It was my fourth. And so study after study continues to show that the number one trait you have to have in these founders in the current environment, at least, and maybe we'll hear from Burak that this is maybe part of the problem, but in the current environment, the number one trait you have to have to be a successful founder is grittiness. The ability to just continue to fight through failure after failure, after setback, after setback, and not quit. And, you know, fortunately I had that, I got to that fourth business, even that fourth business, I almost went out of business three different times. And so I love being able to share, I became an overnight success after a decade of grinding, absolutely grinding. And so when we talk about that risk, it's the trade-off of somebody could just go get a steady job, a steady paycheck, benefits for their family, or... Do they go take no steady paycheck, maybe no benefits for their family, or in my case, it was benefits that cost 4X what you probably have to pay for health insurance. I was paying back over a decade ago, I was paying $2,400 a month for my family to have health insurance. And so do you go take all those extra risks with no guarantee that there's going to be a payout at the end of that? And knowing that most founders never get that payout at the end of it. So that's what we talk about with this risk of entrepreneurship is why would I go choose that life of unknowns? There were times I didn't know how to buy groceries for my family. You know, I was very, very fortunate. I had you know, in-laws that came alongside and said, hey, here's food. So had I not had that, I probably could not have gone through that period of having to find that grittiness. Uh, there was actually a time I had an application to go work on the assembly line at General Motors because I was just that desperate to take care of my family. So when we talk about risk of an entrepreneur, this is the type of risk we're talking about, that it is, it is a grind. It pushed me to my absolute limits mentally. There are lots of times it just wasn't worth it. And in hindsight, I'd do it all again, but that's because I know the end of the story. What we are asking entrepreneurs to do today is to take all those same risks, knowing that the end of their story is most likely not going to be this incredible outcome that I got to experience. So I just wanted to paint that picture a little bit, Burak. So that as you go into how do we help solve some of this, that people have a context of what do we even need to solve? It's like, we got to get people to be willing to take 
a risk or we got to fix it so it's not so much of a risk when they do that. So with that context, I'd love to hear your your proposals for how do we actually go approach this and de-risk the landscape so we can have more entrepreneurs out there. Yeah, I will put it in one sentence first, and then I will try to dig deeper into it. So in a sentence, the solution would be to reduce the gap, the difference between the mean outcome and the median outcome for the entrepreneurs. Oh, Baruch, that is very, very powerful. I want to make sure we break that down so that all of our listeners can understand what you just said, because this is a really powerful concept. Can you give us an example of what you mean by that? Sure. Let me try. So let's imagine 100 entrepreneurs, right? All of these people grinded out over five, 10 years. Let's call it 10 years. By the end of 10 years, how much money did they make? Maybe five of them did, you know, a couple of billion dollars. Well, probably more like one of them did a couple of billion dollars. And maybe another couple of them made some hundred million dollars or millions of dollars, let's call it. So let's imagine these outcomes ranked from one to 100. I don't want to call it top performing ones because there's obviously an element of luck involved. But let's say the entrepreneurs who had the best financial outcome. If we rank them by that order, maybe 10, 20 of them made money, but the rest of them made zero from their business. You know, it's a very, very skewed distribution. And when I say the mean, I'm referring to the average. So if you take that top 10 outcomes and divide over the entire population, maybe the average founder, maybe they made $10 million, right? But it's all skewed by one, two, three of those entrepreneurs having a just incredible outcome. You know, you have a Mark Zuckerberg in there. He's going to throw the entire curve off for everyone. Exactly. It's like that one kid in your math class that was an absolute genius and he sets the curve and everybody else is like, come on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what we need to do is we need to care about entrepreneur number 50. So we need to make sure that he doesn't make zero he makes something. Okay, maybe not millions or maybe not, you know, a couple of billion. But basically, we want to reduce the difference just so slightly between the average outcome and the median outcome. And there's a way to do that. This is actually, there are tools. I don't know the origin of these, but I think that these sorts of schemes have been used throughout history, like in farming, for example, there are these things called farming mutuals, if I'm not mistaken. Effectively, all the farmers are sharing their risk, in a sense. So sticking to the kind of farming mutual example, we can build something similar called a founder's mutual. And let's imagine a group of entrepreneurs that passed some sort of vetting process. It could be anything, but let's say they raised seed funding from reasonable investors or reputable investors, etc. So that, you know, I suppose it is good to have some sort of filtering there, but it's important that it's at the very beginning of their journey when the risk is still very, very high and they're still facing a very uncertain future. So at that point, what we can do is if we pool 5% of their equity, so basically what would happen is all these 100 entrepreneurs, they would give up 5% of their equity in the business into a pool. And in exchange, they would get 1% of that pool. 
So what this ensures is that whatever the average outcome is in that cohort, let's say, if out of these 100 people, average outcome after 5-10 years was $10 million, then we would know for a fact that the median entrepreneur is going to make 5% of 10 million, which I guess is $500,000. So this would ensure that it would create this cushion where we know that at the end of their journey, all of these people are going to make a minimum amount. Now, this is one way to do it, of course. And there are certain ways that this kind of scheme can be gamed, like people with no intention to start a business can try to kind of talk their way into a scheme like this or raise their capital into a scheme like this. But I feel like those things can probably be figured out. It is also entirely possible that there are simpler, more straightforward ways of de-risking entrepreneurs than this. I like this one because I feel like the time horizons match because you do want your entrepreneurs to kind of not care that much about what they make the next year or the next year, but, you know, care about five, 10 year outcomes. But even a more straightforward thing could be just paying the founders to start companies. <laughs> so, I mean, I might be digressing here a little bit, but I always try to think about the scenario where let's keep capital constant, right? Nobody ever raises any more venture capital for the next five years. And overnight, let's say all top engineers in Silicon Valley or globally or wherever they are, they quit their secure jobs at, let's say, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, etc. And then they start to start companies. Like what would happen? So you would get more competition for capital, right? So the seed valuations would drop, signaling that the opportunity set in front of the founder is perhaps less now because perhaps there will be more competition, etc. So it would create the intended benefit in the sense that the price would drop and maybe we would fix the scarcity problem. Of course, our objective is not to make sure that entrepreneurs make less money. That's not our objective. Our objective is to ensure that this bottleneck is resolved. And I think that the resolution of the bottleneck would be visible in price. So I think there are ways to tackle this. My favorite way currently is what I described, creating a founder's mutual. Yeah, it's really insurance for founders. In a sense, yes. Yeah, it's an incredible concept, Barack. I've not heard anybody else talk about this yet. And I like it. So I've actually pulled up on my screen. I did a venture capital course through the Wharton School back in 2020. So this data is not that old. And what it showed is 75 out of 100 entrepreneurs that, and these are venture capital backed founders. So this skews a little bit. You're not talking about your food trucks and things of that nature, but venture capital backed founders, which are really arguably most of the companies that are going to go out and build lots and lots of jobs. And so 75 out of 100 of those entrepreneurs walk away with $0 after you know, five, 10 years, however long they go put into it. They walk away with $0, 75 out of 100. Two out of 100 walk away with more than $100 million. And we don't have any out of 100 walking away as a billionaire. In fact, we have to take a subset of 1,000 entrepreneurs. And if we had 1,000 entrepreneurs, two of those would walk away as almost two of those would walk away as billionaires. And so... What Burak is talking about is a very, very serious challenge to entrepreneurship. Who would go give up a great opportunity for a steady job in order to go take on a ton of risk, 
knowing 75 times out of 100, they're going to walk away with zero dollars. And if they are the one that has the luck and things fall into place and they do really, really well, then they're going to have a big swath of society saying, well, they didn't earn it. (laughs) And so they're going to face all this backlash if they are the successful one. It's a really tough environment for entrepreneurs. And I like, I really, really like what Barack is talking about of creating almost an insurance pool out of the equity of these businesses. It's a really, really novel concept. I think it's absolutely brilliant. How would you actually go operationalize that if you were able to? Before we dig into that, I didn't know those numbers. So I'm really glad that, you know, in the example we gave out of 100 entrepreneurs initially, we weren't far off. (laughs) It was pretty close to reality. What I love is, you know, us just kind of spitballing we even thought that the results were better than what they are. Yeah. You know, a couple of successful entrepreneurs probably skewing our own mental bias to think that the data is, you know, a little better than it is. But yeah, 75 out of 100 walking with zero. Exactly. In systematic trading literature, let's call it, there is this concept. I read this somewhere once. So basically, median outcome is closer to how humans form expectations. So this is exactly, basically, this is another way of saying, why would I leave my steady job? (laughs) So because median is closer to how humans form expectations, the mean can rise as much as it wants. And that's the thing, like the right now, the market is effectively, because market is supposed to solve these problems, right? If something is scarce, if there's a shortage, the price goes up and the shortage should be fixed. But currently, as a society, our pricing scheme is very suboptimal in terms of getting more entrepreneurship out of the market, pulling more entrepreneurship out, because we are, we keep raising, I mean, nobody's actually like sitting somewhere raising the prices, but effectively as a society collectively, what ends up happening is market keeps raising the average price without doing anything about the median. And people care about the median outcome, not the average outcome. So I feel like there is a lot of free lunches, so to speak, that we can eat as a society if we somehow fix this problem. And operationally, I mean, I think this would be trivial. I have spoken to a few firms that are trying to tackle this. I think what can happen is, I mean, I suppose this could be like a typical special purpose vehicle, a fund of sorts, where the founders themselves just pool capital to give up 5% of their equity stake. And I actually talked to a couple of venture capital friends of mine who run venture capital firms. They said they wouldn't necessarily be bothered by this idea if the founder is giving up a small stake. Of course, they don't want him to be giving away 50% of his stake, but 5% is small enough that he will still be motivated. So this would be a matter of, yeah, it does appear to be a trivial implementation. And eventually, as these businesses grow and hopefully a couple of them get sold, that fund would appreciate in value and all the founders in the cohort would own a small share of that business, of that fund. Well, I hope this is something we'll have you back on an update and you will actually see somebody deploying this and hopefully we'll see entrepreneurship, you know, have less of a bottleneck as a result of it. I think it's a really novel idea, Baruch, and so glad that Uh, You've been willing to share it and, you know, kind of open source this to the world to say, you know, guys, we have a problem here. Let's go fix it. 
Here's a potential exactly. solution. You know, we have insurance for everything else. You can get insurance today. It seems like for going in and buying a video game at a big box store, you can walk out with insurance for that. So when we know 75 out of 100 entrepreneurs are not going to walk out with a large payout, gosh, why can't we figure out how to put some insurance in the mix and de-risk that? I think it's absolutely brilliant. So again, thank you for sharing that. I do want to give you some time here. I do want to talk about what you're doing on the cryptocurrency trading side of things, because I think your approach is something that our listeners haven't heard about. And listeners, just as a reminder, we as a show, we don't make any uh, recommendations for investments. We're not recommending you get into crypto or anything of that nature. We're recommending you continue to educate yourself. So having Burak willing to share what he's up to, I think is really, really helpful. Yeah. So I think crypto, because I come from a markets background, my interest in crypto did not originate from its potential to create a new sort of money or anything like that. I do appreciate because far more smarter people have already figured out what the potential of it could be in terms of what can be built on top. It is effectively a new competing platform in a sense. It's kind of like, you know, when mobile phones came out, we didn't know that Uber would become a thing, but it happened. So it's very hard to predict these things. And I think it has tremendous potential. But the feature of crypto that truly caught my eye was how totally unanchored it was as an asset. I should probably describe what I mean by that. So typically when you have an asset, like imagine real estate or bond or equity, whatever you can imagine, you typically have something that acts as a center of gravity around price. So it will pull the price towards some sort of equilibrium. Because with the real estate, you know, you have a rental cash flow, right? So you probably, you know, and that creates a return. And given that return, you could say, well, I want a 5% cash flow yield if I'm going to own a rental property. So market stabilizes somewhere. And, you know, and that's probably not the only factor, but there is some sort of cash flow which you can discount to today and make a decision about price. It kind of goes back to the value investing point as well, right? You know, Apple has a bunch of earnings a lot of them, and uh, you use that to effectively price Apple, probably imperfectly, but still, there is a basis for valuation. And whatever liquid asset you look at, this sort of anchor, some kind of basis for valuation would be there. Again, going back to the copper example, for example, you know, there is a cost of mining for copper, right? It takes money to actually extract, excavate, whatever it's called, mine, I should say. It takes money to mine the gold. So it's a combination of capital and labor costs. If copper price were to double or triple or go up 10x overnight, you can imagine the supply increasing because there is more incentive to mine. Now with Bitcoin, this is not the case. So Bitcoin price could be $1 or $1 million. It doesn't matter. There will only be 21 million of them because the algorithm adjusts the difficulty accordingly. So what this means is we have something that resembles an artwork or a collectible or perhaps a classic car that is just also very liquid. There is no other asset like this. I've been thinking about it. I've been asking my friends, my friends in hedge funds. Nobody has been able to come up with an example. So it is as if you put a Mona Lisa painting on an ETF, which for whatever reason, People don't seem to do, perhaps for these reasons. It's maybe it's not a great idea to have a totally unanchored asset trade very liquid in a very liquid fashion. 
So what this means is that there's no basis for valuation. And that's why we see all this volatility. And that's why perhaps we see all these boom bust cycles. And trend following is a style that has been around for a very long time. It, it is known to work across asset classes. So that's the opportunity that we saw when we first looked at crypto. Look, trend following works for a range of reasons. And one of those reasons is thought to be some assets are poorly anchored. Well, if no asset is as poorly anchored as crypto, then, you know, and if trend following has worked across all of these asset classes, then it probably should work on crypto as well. And that's how we got started. And that was the kind of interesting feature of crypto that first caught our attention. And when did you make this pivot into digital assets? Yes. So 2018, January. Okay. So that was the first time we started trading. So Barack, this is really fascinating to me. And it makes sense conceptually. I I mean, you're saying, hey, we don't have any really solid way to put a valuation on this. Just like, how do you decide that this sculpture is now worth $90 million? Yes. We don't have a solid way to do that. But what we can watch is how are people bidding at the auction? And the difference that we get with Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies is there's a live auction happening all day long. We don't have to wait for one marked event at Sotheby's, you know, once every three months. We can watch the auction happening in real time all day long. And so the ability to do trend following in this type of asset is very easy. Exactly. We can observe the auction all day. So I love it. Well, Barack, this has been absolutely wonderful. We get to move into my favorite segment of the show now, where I actually get to ask you two questions. The first is the question everybody wants to know. And what I actually mean is it's the question I want to know. And then the second one will be the real question that I think everybody wants to know. So here's my question for you today. You know, I've never moved from one country to another where cultures are different and you know the people i'm surrounded by are different and you've moved from istanbul turkey to london england i would like to hear actually two questions in this i would like to know what has been the best part of that and what has been the most difficult part of that move sure actually it gets a little bit even more interesting than that, because when I was in high school, I did spend one year in Colorado as an exchange student. No kidding. That was actually the first time I was out of the country, by the way. So it was the first time I was on a flight. So I took a flight from Istanbul, Turkey, connected at Frankfurt, I think, and then I landed in Denver. And then I actually was in, a, I don't want to call it a small town. It's a It's a medium-sized town called Fort Collins, around 60 miles north of Denver. So I spent a year there, both with England, but more so with the US. I think one thing that it opened up my eye to is how many different ways people live their lives. Because in Turkey, I think, and this is more broadly common with Asian culture, perhaps, I'm not sure, but... There are maybe 10 ways people live their lives, right? So maybe they become a doctor or maybe they learn a trade, etc. There's a lower variance in terms of how people decide to live their lives. Whereas in US and in England, I've observed people to take very, very different paths uh, with their lives. And uh, just the breadth of 
the choices that people can make was very, very interesting to me. And I will actually tell you, like the number one thing that I noticed when I came to US as a 17 year old, I mean, if something becomes immediately obvious to a 17 year old who is pretty much clueless about life, you know, that's a pretty strong signal, right? about something being just fundamentally different. And I was actually, funny enough, I was talking about this at dinner with one of my friends last night. The number one thing about the US that felt different was the bias for entrepreneurship and the bias for action. And I'll give you a concrete example. Like me being me, I suppose, having an entrepreneurial bent when I was little, I would look at certain situations and see a business opportunity let's let's say you know there would be oh why is the price here different versus there or things like that i would have more of a entrepreneurial bias about things when i went to the us when i was talking about ideas every idea was a good idea basically everybody was very oh you know when i talked about something and it was not even about business in a strict sense people would say oh oh yeah somebody should launch a business about that can we actually start a business around that <laughs> so that was like the number one thing that immediately jumped out to me so i found that very fascinating and even at 17 year old you know obviously us is kind of built on that kind of ethos and you know that was something that was jumped i was able to connect to that let's put it that way so I think that was an amazing thing, just seeing more in terms of how people can choose to live and, you know, the action bias and meeting all kinds of different people. The harder aspect, and I still, to this day, I talk about this to my friends, when you move to a different country, what happens is that a lot of the information you unconsciously acquire is just totally lost. So you're in a totally new framework. So your existing frameworks about the news or life or where you would eat if you're driving across country, all of those are just thrown out the window. So you are a little bit lost. I call it information island. You feel like a little bit of an island of information in a sea of uncertainty. And I think that driving example captures it perfectly well. For example, if I was driving from Istanbul to Bodrum, I would have some kind of unconscious rules about where I might eat <laughs> if I'm driving and I'm hungry and I saw a nearby restaurant and I, I can probably tell if it's good or not. Maybe I'm wrong, but you at least have some reference point, some kind of unconscious knowledge. And all of that information goes out the window when you're abroad and you try, you effectively build it up from scratch. But I think to have perfect knowledge in that sense, you have to live in a country from a very young age to acquire all those things. It takes time. So I think that lost kind of unconscious information is the most difficult part. It doesn't make life more difficult in any super visible way, but it's always in the background. That's fascinating. Well, thank you for sharing that. And moving to our final question, Burak, if somebody listening out there today wants to get in touch with you or Stylus Capital, your company, what is the best way for them to reach out? Sure. I think my email would be a good way. So my email is burak.yenigun, my last name, at styluscapital.com. Or it could be our website. So we have a contact form in our website. Um, please feel free to reach out for whatever reason. We can talk about founder scarcity or other things or difficulties of moving abroad. I'm more than happy to, because I find that certain People, especially people who like to listen business finance podcasts, they tend to share a lot of interests and are curious about similar things. You know, this was very obvious when we met, for example, Tommy. And so for whatever reason, uh, please feel free to reach out and I'll be happy to chat. 
So that website is styluscapital.com. It's S-T-Y-L-U-S capital.com. And again, we'll post that in our show notes as well as a link to the blog post that Burak previously spoke about. So Burak, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful to spend time with you. Thank you for coming on and sharing with us about both how you're observing trend following in the digital asset space, as well as a really novel solution to fix the entrepreneurial void that we see today. So I really hope one of our listeners will pick that up and run with it and someday point back to this episode and say, it was that, it was hearing Burak's idea that turned this into something real tangible. I think that'd be tremendous. So thank you again for coming on. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you liked this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.com.